Well, let's pray once again and ask the Lord to use these ancient words to change us and to transform us through his spirit. Our Heavenly Father, as we indeed come under your word now, Lord, we, we do come humbly. We come expectantly. We come thankfully. Lord, you have given us your word so that we can walk in this world. Your, your word gives us hope. And in your Son, the one who was the Word made flesh, we find, we find life. We find vitality. Your Word is indeed active and living. We are sanctified by your Word. It is your Word and the power of your Spirit and the prayers of your Son, Jesus Christ, that will indeed guide us home. And it is to that prayer of Jesus that we turn now. May these precious words serve to strengthen us and to comfort us, to encourage us, to correct us, to rebuke us, to reprove us, to train us in righteousness. May your word, may you, may your spirit use your word to, to change us and to transform us. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as uh, Dave pointed out already, we're smack dab in the middle of a very important section of God's holy word. Um, This place where we, mere humans, are permitted to hear and see a prayer from God the Son to God the Father. This, This place where we are allowed entrance as bystanders, as flies on the wall, into this prayer from the incarnate God made flesh Jesus as he makes appeals to the Father. We might say this is rarefied air. Jesus, the Son of God, talking to God the Father in the hearing of his disciples. When God did his work of creation back in Genesis 1, before he created any person, when no one else was around to talk to, He was speaking things into being. He said things like, let there be light, and so on. But on day six of his creation, he says in Genesis 1, 26, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Who is God talking to when he says that? Who is God thinking about when he says us? Who else is involved in making humankind? Well, we get an answer when we move from Genesis 1 to Colossians 1, specifically verse 16, where it's talking about Jesus. It says, by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. In him, all things hold together. And so back in Genesis 1, when God said, let us make man in our image, he was talking to the eternal Son in heaven. And a conversation with, which also involved God the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God was hovering there and he was involved in that conversation as well. So here we have this inter-Trinitarian, big words, speaking of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We have this conversation 
which involved all three of them, the three in one. Again, rarefied air. But here in John 17, we have it reversed. Jesus, now come to earth, still perfect God, but also perfect man, talking to God the Father. And here we find him talking audibly so that 11 men can hear it and later on record it in this collection of his words, which is in our Bibles. We get to be in that rarefied air as we hear, as we overhear how Jesus prays. And what makes this more amazing is that this prayer not only involves Jesus asking God about himself, and he does that in the first five verses of John 17, he also talks to God about his followers, about his children. In fact, that makes up the majority of this prayer. He is talking to God about us. In Genesis, God says, let us make man in our image. And here Jesus says to God, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Much has happened to humankind between Genesis 1 and John 17. Most significantly, that the way we image God has been seriously distorted. In fact, that distortion happened in Genesis 3. But also in Genesis 3, God promised that he would restore that image. And that he would restore that image in many of his people. And in essence, recreate and rescue his own people. It is these people that Jesus now brings before the Father. Here in John 17. If you are part of this new creation people, then Jesus is praying for you. This is also what Jesus is doing right now. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and he is praying for you. You are included in this magnificent appeal by Jesus to God the Father. It's amazing to think about the fact that in heaven we are being prayed for. It's one thing to be prayed for here on earth by, by one another. But it's an entirely another thing for us to be prayed for in heaven. All our needs are being presented to God the Father by God the Son. Now all of that together is almost too good to be true. But what makes this prayer even better yet is that Jesus is perfect. Which means his prayers are perfect. And the answers to these prayers are 100% guaranteed. Jesus knows exactly what you need. And he knows the will of the Father, the Father knows the will of the Son, and so he prays perfectly in God's will. And you might think, how can Jesus pray for me? Jesus doesn't know how I feel. Jesus hasn't experienced my pain. Well, in fact, he has. He has experienced what you have experienced and far more. If you think it was bad, your experiences are bad, Jesus has experienced far worse. He has walked in your shoes. He left the perfections of heaven and he has come down to this earth precisely so that he could identify with your pain and with your experience even what is the root cause of all that pain bringing us back to Genesis 3, which is our sin. In fact, even as he is praying this prayer for us, he's about to experience and to take upon himself the full vent 
of not only your sins, but the sins of all those who would ever come to him by faith before and after the cross. Here's the way Hebrews 4.15 puts it. It refers there to Jesus as our high priest, as the one who goes to God on our behalf. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The beauty of this prayer in John 17 is that it comes from one who did experience everything that you experienced, even temptation. One who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. So how does Jesus pray for us? What is he asking the Father on our behalf? Well, in verses 6 to 10, we looked at last week, we saw that God identifies that he marks out these people for whom he is praying. They are the ones given to him by the Father from eternity. They are the ones who kept his word and who believed him. He's praying, he says, specifically for them and not praying this prayer for the world. That's what he says. Then, starting in verse 11, we start to see what exactly he asks the Father to do concerning those people who have been given to the Son. And that's where we want to pick up today. So we are in John 17, and right in the middle of that chapter, in verse 11. He says, Jesus speaking to the Father, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name. I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves." I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. So right off the top there in verse 11, we see the setting of this prayer. Uh, We see the, the, the reason that Jesus is praying for his disciples. I'm no longer in the world, but they're in the world. And I'm coming to you. This whole time, Jesus was with his people physically. During these three years of his ministry, and specifically to these followers of Jesus. But he's about to return to be with the Father. Within probably about 12 hours or so of him praying these words, he would be dead. Of course, he would be raised from the dead, but in another 40 days, he would ascend back into heaven where he is now, sitting at the right hand of the Father. Now the beauty and the wonder of John 14, 15, and 16 is that Jesus also promises 
not to just leave us alone. He also promises us to leave the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit, who will live inside believers. But here he essentially prays because he's leaving and, and the disciples are staying. And he starts his requests with Holy Father. That's how he addresses God here, as holy. By the way, remember how Jesus taught us to pray when the disciples were asking him, how shall we pray? He says, pray then in this way, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And so Jesus really models that prayer here at the beginning. Holy Father, he says, hallowed be thy name, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Holy Father. But by addressing God like that, Jesus is making an intentional contrast. I think in this case, he says holy intentionally because he's making a contrast between the Father and the world. The Father is holy. We live in an unholy world. Jesus is praying to the Holy One in order to help us navigate life in an unholy world. Bible-opposing, God-hating, evil-controlled world. How can we possibly survive in such a setting? How can we make it? How can our faith possibly stay intact in such a setting? With such opposition, with such temptations, with such evil intentions on the part of the world and residing in our own hearts. Answer? Because Jesus prays. It's the only way. In sum, we could say that we can make it because as one writer put it, Jesus is here praying us into heaven. Jesus is praying us into heaven. And so Jesus makes three specific requests. At our midweek prayer meeting, before we pray, we often ask one another for requests. We put a list together. What should we pray about, we ask? Well, if we were to ask Jesus for his prayer requests, these would be them. You see the first request in the last part of verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name. There's the request. And then Jesus fills it out. So look again at verse 11. Jesus says, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you, given, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. So really just uh, up to verse 12 there, and we'll attach verse 13 to the next section. That really is an amazing prayer for us. Jesus asks the Father to keep us to keep us in his name, to guard us, to preserve us, to, to watch over us. The, the, the verb tense there means it could be translated as keep keeping them, keep preserving them. Brothers and sisters, if we would grasp onto this truth in its entirety, in, in its depth, in its profundity, it would give us all an enhanced feeling of, of safety and assurance. 
This is one of the most precious truths in the scriptures that God answers this prayer of Jesus. That God keeps his people in his name. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. We, we read it already in Psalm 121. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Isaiah 43 verse 1. Fear not for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters. So waters are going to come when you pass through those deep waters. Even though I have already redeemed you and I have called you by name. When you pass through the waters I will be with you. And And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. God keeps his people. Even protecting us from the threatening waters. Protecting us from the consuming fire. He does not allow his children to to drown. He does not allow his children to burn. And that precious truth is all over the place in the New Testament too. We've seen it from Jesus in the Gospel of John as we've been walking through this. John 6.37 All that the Father gives to me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. John 10.27 My sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. And then all the precious promises post-Gospels when they're thinking about Jesus and talking about Jesus, Romans 8, nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians 1, verse 6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 1, verse 3, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, that is undefiled, that is unfading, that is kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This truth, this concept that God keeps and preserves his people serves to, the, to give the believer great comfort, does it not? But it's even greater comfort knowing that it's Jesus that's asking God to do this. It's greater comfort because the prayers of Jesus will always be answered to perfection. Whatever Jesus asks, the Father always answers. Holy Father, keep your children in your name. For what purpose does Jesus want God to keep us in his name? It says here that they may be one as we are one. Now he's going to talk about about unity among believers, church unity as a means of witnessing to the world later down in uh, verses 21 to 23. But here he's asking that they might be one in terms of being one in mind with God, like Jesus was. Jesus prays that God might keep us of one mind, just like the Father and the Son were. He's asking that that we would not waver from believing what we know to be true about God and about Jesus. Keep them, that they may be one, even as we are one. And we see here what Jesus wants God to keep us from. In a word, God, or Jesus, wants God to keep us from being lost. We can infer that from verse 12. While I was with them, I I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, 
Let me just do a little bit of an aside here. That's not really an aside. Just a few minutes ago, I heaped together all those verses that reminds us that God keeps us. But you might look at those and go, well, wait a minute. What about Judas? Jesus chose him to be a disciple, and yet we're going to see here, if we keep on reading in John 18, that he's going to betray Jesus. In fact, he'd already left the room by this point to, to go out and do that. Well, Jesus isn't out to answer objections in this prayer. His focus is on the fact that he protected all that the Father gave him. But in so doing, he tells us what happened to Judas. His betrayal, his defection, was not a surprise to Jesus. He had predicted it as far back as John chapter 6, and then again earlier on this same night. If you want to look back to John chapter 13, Judas is leaving was not a failure on the part of Jesus. It's not like he he got 11 out of 12 on the test. He got 11 right, he got one wrong. Now the word accept here might be a little bit misleading. No one, not one has been lost except. I think the real meaning would come out more if we said it like this. Not one has been lost, none at all. The son of destruction has been lost, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Judas left, it says, to fulfill scripture. And he's probably referencing here Psalm 41, verse 9. Psalm 41, verse 9, where he says, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. The point is that Judas never was a son of God. He was the son of destruction. If you want to look this afternoon and mark down this reference, 1 John 2, verse 19, describes someone like Judas. 1 John 2, verse 19. Jesus was 11 for 11. He guarded them, and not one of them was lost. He is perfect, and God will answer this prayer perfectly. If you are truly saved, you will not be lost. If you are truly saved, you will not be lost. This should fill you with gratitude. I know, speaking for myself, if Jesus ever stops praying this for me, I would likely leave in a heartbeat right after something goes sideways in my life. My faith is too weak to, to, to withstand the onslaught that life brings. But to know that God is keeping us and preserving us and that Jesus is praying us into heaven, that ought to give us great comfort and great joy and great assurance. And joy leads us into that second request where where Jesus sort of builds up up to it starting there in verse 13, but the actual request is in verse 15. In this section, Jesus acknowledges that once he's gone, his people will be left in a place of danger. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm, I'm, I'm leaving them to the world. And so I need to pray. So listen to what he asks from the Father on our behalf there. And let's start again with verse 13. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I'm not of the world. I'm not asking, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, 
But, here's the request, that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So the request, like I said, is there in verse 15. I do not ask you to take them out, but I do ask, you could infer there, that you keep them from the evil one. In this little section that I read, the word world is mentioned seven times in those four verses. Jesus is saying that the world is a dangerous place. This world where God has placed us for this time is a place of danger. And, and we are here for this time for God's good purposes. But being in the world is, is filled with, with, with landmines. And on top of that, the world is the domain of the evil one, Satan himself. The world is a dangerous place, and Jesus knew it. He knew it to such a degree that he feels led to pray about this to God. And brother and sister Christian, Jesus is still praying this for us now as we live in this world. So look what he says, verse 13. He says that he's been saying all these things from chapter 13 on. I think that's what all these things is referring to. That they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. They're probably, at this point, thinking, joy? We've been reading that they're troubled by this point. They're filled with sorrow. But like we learned back in chapter 16, joy comes in the morning. Joy is in the near future. Joy is on its way. Jesus is praying that they would be filled up with his joy rather than being filled up with sorrow. What was the joy of Jesus in these moments before he would be arrested and crucified? The answer is in Hebrews 12, verse 2. For the joy that was set before him, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising his shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is praying that we would also be encouraged to endurance by that future joy, even during the time that we face disappointments and struggles that come with being in the world. Because we are joined to Jesus, our joy is not in what we experience now here in this world, although we do have even joy in that and knowing that God is always with us, but it is ultimately in what is to come. For the joy set before us. In verse 14, he prays, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. We need this joy of Jesus because the world hates us. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. He repeats that again down in verse 16. Since they hated Jesus, and since We have his word and we believe his word. We should expect that the world is going to respond to us in the same way that they responded to Jesus. Do you feel hated by the world? Or do you maybe think that's a little bit of an overstatement? I think that there may have been a time in recent history when we did not feel that way as much as we might now. That we just sort of went on our own way, the world went its own way, and and the two worlds did not collide too much. But if there was any doubt then, and and I, I would assume maybe it was a little bit more subtle then, but if there was any doubt then, if there was any doubt at one time, there is no doubt now. Just think of some of the 
goings-on in the world in these last few weeks. In China, Christians are being detained and, and being separated from each other by the government with the intention of of disintegrating these churches, of shutting them down, unless they become government-controlled churches. In the U.S., just last week, we had the story of the vice president's wife taking a teaching job at a Christian school. Well, some um, liberal news outlets dug out the, the school's parent agreement and their employment application and their statement of faith, and, and so... So just remember, this is a Christian school with a Christian statement of faith that, that logically reflects Christian values. Yet the media was shocked and aghast that, and mocked the, the vice president's wife for accepting a job at a school as exclusive as that. But we feel the hatred in our own backyard, too. Our own government recently threatened to remove funding from a Christian private school just outside of Camrose for subscribing to Christian values. Parents are being told that their children can join gay-straight alliance clubs without their knowledge. What Christians have believed since Christ is now under attack. And it's out there. It's not underneath the surface. It's becoming increasingly clearer that Christians are at odds with the world. Or in the prayer of Jesus, the world hated them because they're not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. And so Jesus is intimating here that that kind of hatred and ridicule is not surprising. It's just a part of being connected with Jesus, yet living in the world. Should this kind of thing drive us to despair? Well, we might say that ordinarily it might. But thankfully, Jesus not only recognizes how the world will hate us, but then he prays for us in light of that. And so what's going on in the councils of heaven is that Jesus is asking the Father continually to keep us from the evil one. The evil one is behind all of that hatred of the gospel and all of that resistance of Christian values and the silencing of churches. Satan is the prince and power of the air. He's the ruler of this world, but thankfully, even though we live in the world, the world is not our domain. Jesus has taken us out of the world. He's taken us out of the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of light. And so the evil one can tempt us. The evil one can throw everything at us like he did to Job, like he did to to Jesus. But the evil one will not finally overcome us precisely because we are not of the world. We are of God. We are of Christ. And we're not out there on our own trying to hold on, trying to stand firm, trying to make it in our own strength. Jesus is praying that you will be protected from the evil one. And thirdly, in order to be protected and equipped while we live in the world, Jesus knew that we would need one more thing. He knew that we would need to be able to stand apart from all that is in the world. We would, be, we would need to be able to stand apart from all that is in the world. And in order to be separated from the world, in order to withstand, another name for Satan is the father of lies, we would need to know the truth. 
Thankfully, Jesus is praying exactly that. Look again at verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus knew that facing the onslaughts of an evil world would be difficult. It would be tempting to just sort of blend in, to, to just quietly and subtly adopt the world's values. And that is a real temptation, is it not? We don't want to, to really stand out. It's often the way the evil one works. He gives us little doses of the world, a little bit at a time. It's almost imperceptible to us, and before we know it, we are worldly. How do we fend off these subtle, imperceptible attacks? Well, we have Jesus in our corner. He is increasingly sanctifying us. He is increasingly making us holy so that we are set apart from sin and that we can recognize the world's subtle influences. By his spirit, he convicts us. Helps us to see when we're going the wrong way. Gives us a little nudge to try to get us back and onto the narrow way that leads to life instead of the broad way that leads to destruction. And if we're not hearing those influences, then we're then, then it's really dangerous. Then we have to ask ourselves and examine ourselves whether we really are in the faith. But the best tool he gives us to do that, the best tool he gives us to sanctify us, is the truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. When we're sanctified in the truth, when we're immersed in the truth, then the world will be exposed for what it is. We will be able to discern what is godly and what is worldly. As we're immersed in God's word. God is doing this work in you now of sanctifying you in the truth. Jesus prays for it and God is doing it. To the degree that you are immersed in the truth and sanctified in the truth is the degree to which he is making you holy. Jesus is praying that you would be increasingly separated from sin. He is praying for your purity. Psalm 119.11 I have stored up your word in my heart. Why? That I may not sin against you. He is working for your purity as you are sanctified, as he sanctifies you in the truth. As you're immersed in the truth, reading it, sitting under its teaching, embracing it, obeying it, you are being fortified and you are being strengthened to make it in this world. Jesus is praying that God would sanctify you in the truth. Verse 19 tells us this prayer of Jesus for our sanctification has been made possible because Jesus consecrated himself by dying on a cross. He himself was holy. He lived the perfect life so then that we can be holy. He did that for our sake that we also might be sanctified in the truth. And so it's Jesus that makes holiness possible. It's his perfect, pure life that makes holiness possible. And now he prays that we might be holy. Praise that we might be holy. Brothers and sisters, this is a beautiful prayer. It is a needed prayer. We need Jesus to be praying this for us. And more than that, it is an answered prayer. It is being answered, has been answered, it will continue to be answered.
God preserves you. God protects you from the evil one. I should say God is preserving you. God is protecting you from the evil one. God is sanctifying you in the truth. In other words, Jesus is right now at work in heaven, ensuring that you get there. He is praying you into heaven. Isn't that great? Yes, we admit it is often a struggle, but it is a huge comfort to know that Jesus is on your side right now, interceding on your behalf, praying for you. Amen? All glory be to Christ. Let's pray. Holy Father, as your people, as those who have been called by your name, and often we admit, Father, that we can't even get over that fact that you have called us by name, But as your people, called by your name, we thank you for these great assurances. We thank you for these these essential prayer requests from our Savior, um, from our mediator. We, We thank you that you sent your Son. We thank you that he died, but we thank you that he now intercedes for us. And we thank you that your Son understands more than anyone else our greatest needs. And we're grateful that he brings our needs to you and that his prayers are effective and that you are pleased to answer these appeals from your beloved son. You answer this not because we have earned your favor, but because by grace through faith we are connected to your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for protecting us. We would surely be lost without you keeping us in your name. Thank you for keeping us from the evil one while we yet live in this world. Thank you for sanctifying us in the truth, for conforming us into the image of your Son. We we ask that you would help us to keep growing in holiness and in godliness until that day when you call us home. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.